Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. And today we're experimenting. Uh, Let's try the dill pickles. Okay, dill pickle. Here we go, dill pickle. It's weird. Mm -hmm. It's it's like you're riding a bicycle and somebody jumps on the back unexpectedly. (laughs) So you get sweet. And at the same time, the sour is still lurking in the background. That's like listening to a song that's been overproduced electronically, <laughs> and they did weird things to the guitar. You guys are both such purists. What can make a dill pickle taste so strange? Well, Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott from NPR Shortwave are here to share the amazing science of how taste works and how it can be tricked. I love hijacking my body's natural responses. We'll hear more from them later on the show. First, it's my interview with Vietnamese-French chef Khan Le Huynh. She's the co-founder of two restaurants in Paris, The Hood, which serves Southeast Asian street food, and Nonette, which specializes in banh mi and donuts. Khan Le, welcome to Milk Street. Hello, Christopher. Thank you for having me. 
you and I met in Paris not too long ago. And what really struck me was that you have so many different interests. You know, your life goes way beyond restaurants. You told me you studied law, then you traded luxury watches for a while. So <laughs> how did you end up coming to work in the world of food? Um, so when I left the city I grew up in, Orléans, when I was 20, I went to Paris to do um, a diploma for uh, international business. And I interned for a luxury watch company on the Place Vendôme. So I worked there for about three years and I got very bored at the end of my contract. And I decided to reconvert into cooking because a lot of friends advised me to do that because I was apparently very good at it. And I, um, I did a big jump because I, I, I have to say, I candidated for the TV show MasterChef in 2015. So I got casted and then I won the same year. So things really moved fast because I went from, oh, I, I love cooking to, oh, uh, I won this TV show now. So it's basically, it's, uh, it's, it's the time for you to prove yourself and, and make cooking your life. Well, we should just point out that when you won Master Chef France in 2015, I don't think at that point you'd had any formal training. In fact, you got a culinary degree after winning Master Chef France. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I'm a double culture child, it was really hard for me to find my style in cooking because I was trying really hard to be French and to be accepted as French as much as I was struggling to find my own Vietnamese roots altogether. So when I did the show, my food was really, really, really complicated. Now, of course, uh, it's about nine years later, and my style has evolved a lot. So really, it made me more, it made me mature very fast into the style of cooking that I was going into, and also as, as me as a, as a human being, yeah. So let's talk about your two restaurants, No Net and The Hood. No Net has these amazing donuts and banh mi sandwiches. And then the hood has this really, um, it's a really specific feel. There are musical instruments lying around. People are hanging out. They're drinking juices. So so what's your idea there? Your, your idea is more than just a place that serves food. It's more of a community center. What, what is it? So when we founded the, the Hood uh, back in 2016, it started off as a coffee shop. Therefore, all the instruments, the guitar, the piano. But when we wanted to bring the food, I wanted to showcase what I actually grew up with and what Perlin, my business partner, would grew up with is authentic and genuine Asian food as we would have as a kid. The thing is, in France, people have so much stigma of how Asian restaurants should look like. It should have red velvet chairs, an aquarium, you know, some unpleasant uncle serving the plates in front of you, you know. And uh, it's, 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 of course, one of the different possibilities and one of the different looks that the Asian restaurant could look like. But it's not most of it. It's not necessarily supposed to be looking like. And uh, the thing is that as a business owner, you can make your restaurant look the way that you want want it to look. It's yours. Let's talk about banh mi. You know, th this is one of the things that should be easily translatable for home cooks. So if you want to give people a, a one-minute course on banh mi for them to make it at mm. home, what would you tell them? Uh, so banh mi, it has a, a lot of different ingredients, but if you have the right one, it will go perfectly. So the base is, of course, a good bread. Second, the, the fat. It's really important to use fat as the first layer. So you have different possibilities between butter, mayo, or chicken fat, which is schmaltz. A good layer just on the bottom. This, you don't need to put on both sides. It's just my personal taste. I don't think it's necessary. Uh, second layer, it's the protein. Uh, of course, the classic is with uh, pork meat because it's the biggest meat we found in Asia. It's the easiest and the cheapest. Uh, so either uh, some marinated pork meat, pork shoulder, uh, pork loin. Um, and then the pickle we use, uh, the mix of daikon and carrots. You can do a fast pickling. Just white vinegar, a bit of sugar, a bit of salt. It doesn't have to be boiled. And I always finish the banh mi with a bit of, um, with a bit of white pepper uh, powder. It really is up to you, whatever you want to do your banh mi with. If you want to do it vegan, you can replace with some fried tofu that you marinated before. You can replace with some um, eggplants that you fry. There's so many different recipes. You can do whatever you want with it, as long as it's crunchy and herbal, that's good to go. 
You, you mentioned somewhere uh, that when you make mayonnaise, you use tofu. So you want to just tell us about that? So for our vegan banh mi, we use a vegan mayo. It's basically the same start as a classic egg mayo. You just replace the egg and you triple it with the silken tofu quantity. And you just emulsify it with the, with the neutral oil as you would do classically. You once said, when I go out to eat, I want to go somewhere where I know nobody. <laughs> You're so sick of being in the restaurant yeah. business, you want to go incognito. Um, it's more that, you know, when you have a restaurant, you are talking to so many people daily. And it's not that I don't love people. It's more that I get so drained because it just drives me so much and it takes so much of my energy and, and brain space that whenever I want to eat, I want it to be unprofessionalized. I don't want to think about where I'm going to eat or if, am I meeting someone from the industry? I just want to go and eat and, oh, this is good. And not even think about, oh, it's undercooked, it's overcooked. Oh, how they're hardly plating behind the bar. How many people is there? I don't want to be analytic about what I'm eating. And I want to just switch off my brain for a second. Uh, that's me. Kylie, thank you so much. It was great meeting you in Paris and now talking to you and all the best uh, with your restaurants. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. That was Con Lee Huynh, chef and co-founder of two restaurants in Paris, The Hood and Nonette. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So, Chris, have you had any aha culinary moments this year? You personally, has there been a moment when you're like, wow? Yes, yes. This is my aha moment, and it happened in Paris. I was doing oeuf mayo, which is a classic French dish. As you know, you hard cook the eggs, cut them in half lengthwise, and then make a mayonnaise with mustard and... Stuffed eggs. So I'm sitting there at some ungodly hour in the morning uh, with, with this chef, and he cook the eggs, okay? So he put them in boiling water. I usually start them in cold water. He put them in boiling water. He cooked them eight minutes and 40 seconds exactly. And then he takes them out because he wants the yolk to be still moist, right? He puts it in this huge water bath. With ice? Oh, yeah, tons of ice. And he lets it sit for three minutes. And then he starts peeling the eggs, egg after egg after egg, perfect. I mean, the shells came right off. So it turns out that the cooking method had nothing to do with, with the solution. The solution was cool down the eggs, shock them, and use a huge water bath with lots of ice in it. So the temperature comes down, the egg inside the shell starts to pull shrink. away from the shell and shrinks. And so I, I brought this back as my big aha moment. Everyone laughed at me. So we went into the kitchen. We took a couple dozen eggs. Every single egg peeled, like, instantly. Did you do the 8 minutes, 40 seconds? 8 minutes and 40 seconds. So the yolk is still moist and not fully cooked. You know, it's perfect. And the white was tender. And the white is cooked and tender. But it was the shock of the cold that is what solves the problem of how to peel, peel. a hard-cooked <gasps> egg. Wow. And so, you know, may maybe it could have been something more interesting. No. Like I finally no. figured out the mystery of beef bourguignon. But that works. No, I feel so enlightened because I love hard-boiled eggs. Wow, try I'm going to have to try that. But big ice bath. Got it. Ice. Got it. I okay. will do that. That's my moment. All right. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, uh, John. Hi, John. Where are you calling from? Carroll Stream, Illinois. How can we help you today? I like cooking with mushrooms. I like cooking with wine. And I thought there might be a little trick to selecting the wines for each type of mushroom or for the type of beef. And uh, we just take any wine that we have and pour it into the food, and it seems to taste better. But I thought it's time to uh, learn a little something about wines and mushrooms. I love adding wine to recipes, too. And, you know, in the old days, they used to say, don't ever cook with the wine that you wouldn't drink. And, you know, mostly that's true, but a lot of the nuances of wine are lost when you cook with it because you reduce it down like crazy. So I would say the two most important considerations are the acid and the sugar. So you don't really want to use a sweet wine unless you're looking for a sweet sauce. But, you know, in terms of the rest of it, it sort of all cooks down and the nuance, as I said, gets lost. So I generally, when I'm cooking with mushrooms, use a red wine. But if I don't have red wine handy, I've added a dry rosé or a dry white and it's all worked really well. 
Chris, do you have any thoughts? You know, I think the issue is less about which wine. I mean, I think a medium-bodied wine, you don't want anything with big tannins. As you said, nothing too sweet. You want a decent wine. But I think the big rule, I believe this with all my heart, is never add wine from the bottle to a pot. Always take the wine, put it at a very low simmer, if it's a whole, you know, 500 milliliter bottle, cook it down till it's just a few tablespoons, maybe a quarter cup. And then you've reduced it down in a way where you don't ruin the wine. And also I find when you cook meat, like beef in wine, just leaches out a lot of the flavor from the meat and makes it kind of nasty. So in most of the recipes I've seen from it, like Italian beef stews, the wine is reduced separately and it's added in near the end. And I find then you get a wonderful flavor and you don't ruin the meat. That would be my recommendation. I absolutely would recommend cooking the wine too, because if you add it just straight out from the bottle, you get sort of a raw wine taste. And so you, you do need to reduce it. You know, my short ribs recipe, the secret to it is a whole bottle of wine reduced down to one cup, not yeah, to two tablespoons. And just don't buy a lousy wine. Yeah. I mean, is that re- remotely helpful there, John? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I-, I never even thought of that technique. And I have a question. When you reduce it, is it going to thicken like a glaze or is it just going to get richer in color? Or does it stay liquidy? Yeah, if you reduce a whole bottle down to a cup or half a cup, yes, it'll still be liquidy. It might be slightly thicker. If you reduced it down to a a few tablespoons, then it will be like a demi-glace. It'll be very thick. That sounds really exciting because that's going to concentrate that flavor. Yeah, and you also don't lose all the aromatics, which you would normally. Anyway, give that a shot. Thank you. Thanks, John. Take care. Have a good one. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Glenn Malaspina. How can we help you? I have a question in regards to following recipes. I'm pretty good about the different techniques that are required. The one thing that eludes me, though, is setting the temperature on a stovetop, medium, medium high. I was wondering if you guys had any rule of thumb that might give me a hand with that. Well, I can answer this question if you tell me how many angels dance on the head of a pin, because it's about as obscure as that. There's basically no answer. Gas burners are all different. Some of them have 8,000 BTU output. Some have 15,000. Some have 20,000. It also depends on the burner itself. Some of them, the pan's sitting way above the heat source. Some of them, it's closer down. Finally, depends on the pan, whether it's a cast iron pan or a stainless steel pan with a aluminum sandwich inside that's thinner, a few things I can tell you. In general, it's better to heat a pan slowly so you get nice, even heating. And that's also good for cast iron. It's good to start sort of medium-low so it really gets a chance to evenly heat. The last thing I can say is if you can put your hand like two inches above the surface for just two or three seconds, it's really hot. If you can let it sit there for five to seven seconds, it's kind of medium And if you can leave it there forever, it's sort of low. The other thing you can do is just put a little oil, tablespoon or two, in the bottom of the pan. And if you're going to saute, you want it hot. So when the oil starts to smoke and ripple, you know that the pan's up to, you know, 420, 450 degrees because that's when oil smokes. But if you want to saute, that's a good trick. Sarah? Yeah. What Chris just said, I agree with, that the oil starts to ripple before it smokes, and that's a good way to know that it's hot. But another thing is, if you heat the pan, you can heat them dry without the oil and then add the oil. Sometimes if I want to see if it's getting hot enough, I'll throw a little water into it before I add the oil. And if the water evaporates immediately, then I know it's really hot, and then I'll add the oil. I do have two other quick things. I found onions. I now put them in a cold pan. I don't preheat the pan. Someone taught me this trick, actually, a a chef here in Boston, said, listen, it's the noise. So you can listen to the sizzle of something's cooking. And once you get a little experience, you know when onions, for example, are cooking at the right rate. The other technique I think is really important is as you're cooking, very often you need to start turning the heat down. Like if you're sautéing, once you set it to a temperature, don't leave it there. 
listen to what's going in the pan, look at what's going in the pan, and then adjust the heat. You know, it's like driving. You don't want it on cruise control the whole time because you'll end up with a disaster. So you just have to constantly monitor. You know, based on what you just said, Chris, too, also, I think an important thing to say, if you're cooking a steak or a piece of meat and you want to get some color on it and you put it in the pan and it's crickets, there's no sound, it's way too low. You want to get the steak in there and hear, tst. Can you do that again? <laughs> that was really good. That that was a fun question. I like that. It was question. it was a great question. Yes. Oh, this was wonderful. All right. Thanks for calling. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Sarah and I are here to answer any and all of your cooking questions. Give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Katrina from Scottsdale, Arizona. How can we help you today? So I have a bit of a problem with chocolate Italian meringue. Mostly, I'm not sure if it's actually possible. So I've made Italian meringues before, and I've made Italian meringue icings before with chocolate flavorings, but I've never actually made just the meringue itself. Right. With chocolate, and I was putting the cacao powder into the actual syrup mixture Hmm. that you end up pouring into the egg whites once they're whipped. And for some reason, it just completely collapsed from soft peaks and I could not revive it. I don't know what happened. So you beat egg whites and then you pour in a hot sugar syrup. I've forgotten the temperature, what, 230, 240, something. You drizzle that in while you're beating them and you continue beating the whites for a few minutes, right? I think afterwards. Until you get firm peaks. Right. So you brought the sugar syrup up to temperature, then added the cocoa powder to it, or? I actually brought it up to temperature with the cocoa Uh, powder in the syrup. I used a really fine cocoa powder, too, and I sifted it in to make sure there wouldn't be any big chunks. Well, cocoa powder doesn't have a lot of fat in it because the fat's in the cocoa butter. No, but even so, I can't think of any occasion where you actually add some dry ingredient to whipped egg whites. No. It would always deflate it. Your goal is to make what kind of meringue? I was just hoping to get a chocolate Italian meringue, mostly because I wondered if it was possible. Do you mean a cookie? Do you mean a frosting? What do you mean? Um, I was thinking of using it as a topping on a trifle, if I could get it to work. Hmm. And you don't want to go the whole buttercream route? Right. Hmm. I would do it a buttercream and I would melt chocolate, you know, over double boiler or in a very low heat. I'd let it cool down, then do it that way. Then add that, it to the buttercream. That would you've... work. Well, you've done something nobody's done before. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard of doing something that. Something incredibly stupid that nobody's no, done before. I oh, no, no, no. I, no I, I hold the world record incredibly stupid. No, and, and some of the best <laughs> things that have ever happened, like champagne, were a mistake. So don't don't ever not try. But the question we've not answered, because we're so good at not answering questions, (laughs) is why, by adding cocoa powder to sugar and water and creating a syrup and then pouring it into whipped egg whites, did the egg whites immediately collapse? I'm trying to understand the science behind it, why it's not possible to add in the solid until after the meringue itself is formed. You've made Italian meringue before, obviously, right? Yes, and Italian meringue buttercream, which was chocolate-flavored. You know what? We're going to have to get back in touch with you because we have to go test this. You've stumped us. I mean, if it helps, there's a chance it will never work because it wasn't even in the textbook I tried modifying it from. We'll have to ask our science consultant, and we'll get back to you. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we answer the question, is your bitter the same as my bitter? And are humans the only species that love sour? We'll uncover that and more right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. 
Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my conversation with Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott, hosts of NPR's daily science show, Shortwave. In their Taste Buddy series, they cover everything from sweet and sour to what's beyond our classic idea of taste. Emily and Aaron, uh, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. You know, taste is really one of my favorite topics of all time because the science is is really interesting. Uh, But you guys have a more um, in-depth take on all of this. So why is taste important to human beings? I mean, on one level, it's about pleasure. So it's important because it's a source of great joy in life. But it's also very much about biology. Taste is how our bodies 
know what to consume, how much of it we should eat. You know, salty is wonderful in certain quantities, but you eat too much of it and it's repulsive. So, I mean, taste is really kind of like how our body's biology meets the world. So let's separate taste into two parts, right? There's the tongue and then there's the palate where the taste buds are. And then there are nasal receptors where you get a lot of information about taste from scent, from aroma. So how much of what we consider taste really comes from the nose versus the palate? Yeah, it's really difficult to pin down a hard number on how much of what we commonly think of as taste actually comes from smell. So I like to think of it in terms of flavor. Flavor is a combination of so many things, and that includes smell. We did an episode with Kara Hoover, a biological anthropologist. She says there's actually two kinds of smelling. So there's the kind that is that, is air coming in through your nose. But the second kind is when you're chewing and air gets pushed up into the nose from your mouth, and then back down into the mouth. It's one of the reasons why a lot of professional wine tasters actually chew the wine. That's because they want to get that retronasal olfaction, that cycle of air going from the mouth to the nose to the mouth, and fully experience the flavor, which is, again, the blend of smell and taste together. So sweet, sour, salty, bitter, those when I was a kid were the basic taste. I guess umami's been added to that. But you've talked to scientists who think that there are a lot more tastes than five or six. Calcium is a taste, metallic, effervescence. So does this list just go on and on and on? Or are the five main tastes, are they essentially bedrock? It seems that there's definitely more than the five. I mean, I think when we were talking with Katie Wu, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic, she was estimating, you know, like maybe a dozen We even know that there are receptors in the tongue that we don't know what they are receiving. Hmm. I mean, it seems for the people who are really into, like, what are the other tastes out there, the the search is to figure out what is that receptor and then kind of the, the baseline of is it a taste is can we turn that receptor off and suddenly you don't taste that thing anymore. I mean, these receptors are actually throughout our bodies. I mean, we were talking about, you know, there's taste receptors on your tongue and in your nose, but there is bitter taste receptors in our respiratory system. There was, you know, a viral trend a while ago based off of research that found that there's salty and umami taste receptors in testicles that led to, you know, all sorts of ridiculous online videos of people trying to figure out if testicles could taste soy sauce. Um, But there's these Oh, the internet. How I love thee. First of all, is that speculation or is that fact? And secondly... Could someone explain to me, if it is true, why it would be true? So my understanding is it is fact. However, the taste receptors are inside the testicles. So it is not something that you could sense by doing what people online were doing of dipping their dumplings into soy sauce. (laughs) I mean, basically, taste receptors are just, you know, sensing certain chemical compounds. And we assume because we're so you know, human and food focus that it's all about just tasting what tastes good or bad, but every compound has flavors to it. So I think in the case of the testicles, it has to do with sperm production. Like they knocked out those taste receptors, I believe, in mice and the mice stopped producing sperm. And so in the case of fish, they have sour taste receptors all over their body, which is monitoring how acidic the water is that they're swimming through. Sweet, sour, salty, etc. This is interesting. Not all animal species have those five senses in their mm-hmm. taste holster. And you go on to say some carnivores, for example, have lost the ability to taste sweet. Yeah. So cats, otters, I think hyenas, they don't really consume carbohydrates. They mostly are consuming, you know, a protein meat-based diet. So they've like over time, lost the ability to taste sweet because they don't need it. Or the saddest one to me was dolphins, who mostly swallow their food whole, have lost bitter, sweet, and salty. Of all the animals that have been studied, the only taste that seems to be universal is sour. That kind of signifies that it must be doing something important. Scientists still don't really know what that is. What I've realized about taste and just brain stuff in general is we we know a lot and we know very little, you know, like we know more than we've ever known in the history of humanity. And we also truly don't know how it works. 
that's why we love science. Yeah. It's the unanswered yeah. questions. Um, back in the 70s, I remember I went to a science of food seminar, and uh, there was a test given to us about whether you can taste bitter. And I guess some people can taste a lot more than other people. Why is that? Is that true? And if so, why? Ooh, good question. Yes. And I mean, if, if you would indulge us, we'd love to uh, reenact this <laughs> test um, that you probably took then, which is the PTC test paper strip. Yeah, I, ha- I have one right here. Yeah, I have one too that Aaron mailed me. So it's a little white strip of paper. Yep. looks like confetti. Yes, indeed. And it's uh, soaked in this compound phenolthiocarbamide that has like a really neat backstory in that it was, you know, a chemist in, in the 30s was working with it and a puff of it went up in the air and he didn't really notice. And then his lab mate was like, what is that terrible bitter thing that you're working with? And it was the first time that he was, you know, the realization of like, wait a minute, you taste something, but I don't taste it. And so then, like, he'd try to pull people on if they could taste this or not. So, yeah, if we all want to take the strip and put it in our tongues. Should we count down? It's already on my tongue. Me too. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, you got ahead of it. Fine, 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 fine. All right, ready? How is it? Unpleasant. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's horrible. (laughs) Oh, that's really bad. Mm. Yeah, it tastes... Bitter, but not like I'm out to dinner eating something bitter and complicated, but like I'm eating something bitter and poisonous. I I unfortunately have a cold, which may or may not affect this. I I didn't love it, but, you know, and I've done this before and gotten a pretty strong. Maybe you just mailed me plain strips just to fool me. Aaron, you? I don't taste anything. Really? To me, it tastes like I just put a piece of paper on my tongue. And one reason bitter is so neat is there's 25 different bitter receptors. So there's a complexity to bitter that's not there for like sugar. And so basically one of my 25 bitter receptors doesn't function, which I was really heartbroken to find out because I'm like, oh, I love bitter things. I love cruciferous vegetables. I love coffee. And then the scientist, Masha Neve, that I was talking with was like, actually, the reason you love some of those things might be because you don't taste this aspect of bitterness that Ah. some people do taste. Okay, I've just made a discovery. The samples I got say control paper. (gasps) So Uh I just got what I thought I got, which is a piece of paper. But this paper is inert and tasteless and should be used as the placebo in genetic taste testing. So, okay. So you are our control. I knew someone was fooling with me because I was going like, this really isn't very bitter, maybe because I have a cold. So let's move on to umami. I think most people know the origin story here, but you want to just describe it quickly, how it was discovered? Sure. It was discovered a hundred years ago in Japan, but there was this century-long delay. And the paper that was published in 1909 wasn't translated in English until 2002. (laughs) The Japanese chemist a hundred years ago who was trying to isolate that taste used this specific seaweed called kombu, which is native to Japanese cuisine. He distilled that seaweed and distilled and distilled until a single substance began to crystallize, and it's called glutamate. So that's what umami taste is. It's this amino acid called glutamate that sticks to the receptors in your tongue and in your brain and gives you that kind of brothy, meaty feeling that isn't just a feeling of like, this is what it tastes like, but I think it kind of lasts and lingers. We all know salt is like a glutamate, right? It just enhances flavor. How how does it actually work? Do we know how it enhances flavor, uh, what's going on chemically? One of the researchers we spoke with, Dr. Danielle Reed, she mentioned to me that salt is kind of the next big chase because we don't actually understand mm. a lot about why it tastes good or what the exact receptors are for it. So like even though... We know salt's flavor really well. We don't know much about how salt taste works. But it's become public enemy number one in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, which I think has been mislabeled. Sugar, however, you talk about leading to an inflammatory process in the brain, et cetera. So what's the chemistry of sugar in terms of what it does to the body? 
our bodies need sugar. Like sugar is pure energy. We've evolved to really love it, and then that is now sabotaging us because we're no longer in the environment that we evolved in, where you know we'd get sugar from berries on bushes. So it's like now we walk to the store and we can buy a big gulp or a giant soda or something. So even though it is a divine, wonderful tasting thing that our bodies need. On a large kind of societal level, it is the one that is most impacting our health. So, is there a way we could trick our body into thinking something is sweet that is not full of sugar, like in the case of miracle berries, as they've been dubbed,、um, which is a fruit from Western Africa that you can now buy in kind of a little press tablet form? I have them right here. Perfect. We are gonna do a fun little flavor experiment. Just take one of the tablets and let it dissolve slowly, and kind of move it around your mouth so that it's coating your mouth. It looks just like an antihistamine or something.、Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it actually tastes kind of nice. Yeah, it's not a super sweet berry. I mean, it's kind of a very mild berry,、mm -hmm. but it contains a protein called miraculin. Which is basically binding to our sweet taste receptors as we roll this around in our mouth, and it's shifting them so that they're going to be activated by sour things. I love hijacking my body's natural responses.、Mm -hmm. So, let's maybe start with something that is just straight sourness.、Um, okay. Let's maybe do a slice of a lemon. Yeah. Okay. If you have a slice of a lemon in front of you, I do. Oh. That's amazing. That's so strange. I don't think I'd like it very much, but boy, it's like a penny candy. But it it still has sour there. But the first wave of taste、mm. is this kind of unpleasant sweetness. Yeah, it doesn't pucker at all. No, like I have absolutely no puckering. No.、Um, let's maybe try the cream cheese next. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. You know when you go to the bagel shops and you can get regular cream cheese, but then you could also get strawberry cream cheese,、mm -hmm. which is objectively inferior, and no one should eat it. That's what this <laughs> tastes like. It tastes like candy cream cheese, otherwise known as cheesecake. It oh, like it cheesecake does taste like cheesecake. Yeah, it does. Now that you framed it that way, I kind of like but it. But I, I think、hmm. that in the lemon, it was brutally clear <laughs> that something strange was going on. This is this is、mm -hmm. more subtle. Okay. Next,、uh, let's try the dill pickles. Okay, dill pickle. Ready? Here、okay. we go. Dill pickle. Oh, 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 oh! It's weird. It almost tastes artificial. What it does is it pushes down the sourness、mm -hmm. with this in intense, heavy layer of sweet.、Mm -hmm. The sourness isn't gone. It's, it's like you're riding a bicycle and somebody jumps on the back unexpectedly. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> You know, you got you got two people when there really should be one. Yeah. So you get sweet, an artificial sweet, and at the same time, you also the sour still lurking in the background. That's so true.、Yep. That's like listening to a song that's been overproduced electronically, and they did weird things、yeah. to the guitar. Right. That's what this pickle tastes like. It tastes like an overproduced <laughs> dance house song. You guys are both such purists. So, could you just concisely explain what's going on? In my mouth right now. <laughs> so basically, this miraculin has bonded to your sweet receptors, and like the more sour the substance is, the more it's now going to register as sweetness. Which is, I think, why you know the lemon, like the sweet, is so overpowering. Whereas in the cream cheese, which is less acidic, it's yeah, a much subtle. subtler thing. So as we expand our understanding of the palate. How do you think we'll see the science of taste be applied, let's say, a couple decades from now? I mean, I think you know there are a couple of things that researchers are really trying to do with this, like the search for a sugar replacement that still tastes sweet and wonderful. Is it's a race? So, in the case of like these miracle berries, you know, there's work being done of like, could we combine this in a soft drink with a little bit of something sour? That will then taste sweet, but still be calorie free. And then, Chris, there's also the aspect of using food science creatively for other kinds of research. It makes me think of someone like David Julius, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago for figuring out how pain works in the body. And the way he did that was by cloning 
the gene receptors that we use to taste capsaicin, the Hmm. heat in chili peppers. And by basically harnessing the capsaicin response, he really expanded our understanding of um, our nervous system's pain signaling apparatus. Our bodies actually have pain receptors all over the place. And again, these are different from taste receptors. But that's why when you eat spicy food, you sometimes feel it out the other side because your pain receptors on the other side of your digestive system are experiencing that spice all over again. Pretty cool. Well, I have to say this discussion has covered pain receptors and taste receptors. They were totally unexpected. (laughs) You're welcome. Emily and Aaron, thank you so much. Uh, Some images I would prefer to forget, but lots of good information. (laughs) Thanks for having us on the show. Thank you. That was Emily Kwong and Aaron Scott, hosts of Shortwave on NPR. You may have heard the humans use just 10% of their brain. Well, that's actually a misquote of a doctor who once said that we only understand 10% of brain function. Now, the really fascinating part is that the region of the brain that processes flavor inputs also handles memory and emotion. And sweet foods create the most powerful memories. We just can't explain how and why. So the good news is that a birthday cake is a powerful time machine. Take a bite and repeat after me. There's no place like home. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik investigates what it means to be a culinary maestro. That's right up after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Thai cashew chicken. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. Thai cashew chicken as a takeout item in this country tends to be a little on the uh, greasy or gloppy side. It's not a bright, vibrant dish. You just got back from Bangkok, and you, <laughs> you say otherwise. <laughs> you say it's a great dish. At risk of being cliched, I'm going to tell you it was one of the best things I've ever eaten. 
It was bright. It was spicy. It was sweet. It was savory. There were so many layers of texture, crunchy cashews, tender chicken with a crispness to it itself. I mean, it was just unbelievably good. It's nothing like the cashew chicken we get here, which tends to be an American Chinese dish. And the version I had in Bangkok by this home cook, she was drawing on both Thai and Chinese traditions. And for that, she made it a little bit sweeter than the Chinese versions, but not American Chinese versions, and a little bit spicier and a little bit drier. So uh, Thai chili paste is part of this. Mm -hmm. Is that really critical here? Because I would assume what they're using there is quite different than what we have here or not? Actually, we can get a decent approximation of it here in most grocery stores. You know, the toasted Thai chili paste, which is sweet and rich and very savory and a little bit kind of tangy and sour. It's got a lot going on. It is an important ingredient, but we didn't have any trouble finding it at just any grocery store here. Just take me through the basic stir-fry steps for this recipe. Sure. So one of the really nice steps that sets this dish apart is she created a slurry of soy sauce, all-purpose flour, salt, pepper, water. And then she took chicken thighs that she had cut up and she tossed it in that slurry. And I got to tell you, I thought that was going to make a mess when she fried it in the wok. But it didn't. It actually crisped up perfectly. And then the sauce is, you know, the Thai chili paste plus sugar and oyster sauce and a little bit more soy sauce, toasted cashews that go in the, into the wok and get toasted briefly, dried chilies get toasted briefly in the wok. So each of these occurs on its own and then everything comes back into the wok all at once to finish the dish with the sauce. And she also adds mushrooms and onions, which isn't very conventional, but we really liked it. It's delicious. And then you finish it with those crisped chilies and some scallions and, of course, the ice-cold beer. It was really, it really was quite unbelievably good. And what about the wok hay, the flavor of the wok? Did the sort of smokiness of the wok get into the dish? You know, she was a home cook. Now, wok hay is much easier to accomplish in the megawatt burners that you see in Asian restaurants. And home cooks, even in Asia, don't have that. But like a lot of home cooks I've met in Asia, what she did was pour the sauce down the sides of the wok because those huh. sides of the wok get very hot. Right. And what happens is as the sauce goes down those sides, the sugars in it caramelize and it reduces because huh. of evaporation. And that intensifies the flavor. Is that wake? No, not really. But this is a way of kind of approximating that. So Thai cashew chicken done in Bangkok the right way, a cold beer or two, mm -hmm. and even a little shortcut to wake by pouring that sauce down the sides of the wok to get that caramelization and that smokiness. J.M., I don't know why I didn't go on this trip, <laughs> but I'm just dying to have this recipe. Thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for Thai cashew chicken at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's hear what Adam Gopnik is thinking about this week. Adam, how are you? I am well, and I have been meditating at length lately, Christopher, on the difference between soft kitchen skills and showy kitchen skills. I wonder if you would like to hear some of this meditation. Uh, I, I'm on the edge of my chair. <laughs> I can't wait. It all began, this reflection, having dinner with our friends uh, Peter and Susan Hoffman, wonderful food friends, uh, ran a great restaurant in New York for many years now. And in the way of couples who've known each other for a long time, we were all reminiscing about the moment we fell in love. And Peter was saying of Susan that he fell in love with her, watching her chop shallots in the kitchen of the restaurant where they were working together as very young chefs. And I said, well, how can you fall in love with someone chopping shallots? And he said, it was the quiet authority that she did it with. Hmm. And it was such a lovely image of her skill and his fascination with it. It got me thinking about knife skills and what they mean, and more broadly about all of the soft skills of the kitchen. By, by soft skills, I think of things exactly like chopping shallots. I, I don't know if I ever told you, I once got a lesson in chopping shallots from Andre Soltner himself. Really? He was one of the great cardinals of French cooking in New York, ran Lutece for many I, years. I went there and met him a very long time ago. Yes. And he's an Alsatian, actually. In France, it's very significant that you're Alsatian because you sort of belong on the liminal land between France and Germany. In any case, he was shocked 
by my shallot chopping technique, not because it was sloppy particularly, but because it was so dangerous. Because he said, you are about to cut off your knuckles and you have to move your hand back as you chop as though you were under assault by a foreign army and in hmm. retreat. A rather French hmm. metaphor, I For suppose Napoleon, you could say. I guess, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, other things that I think come under the heading of the soft skills of the kitchen. Beating egg whites is one that I've always thought was extremely effective. I know that my own wife, she finds there's something enormously appealing about the sound of mm. metal on metal whooshing through those egg whites and something hugely beautiful about the way that this clump of yellow membrane suddenly becomes this beautiful white cumulus cloud in the bright shining copper bowl. My key memory of feeling the power of the soft skills of the kitchen was seeing my mother unroll strudel dough when I was a very small boy. That's my first memory of mastery, of somebody who in any realm, but particularly in the kitchen realm, could mm. do something that looked impossible and do it well. And for the rest of my life, whenever I see someone doing that, I once saw a Greek baker making baklava that same way. I, my whole body shakes up because it recalls to me the, the sheer power and the meaning of mastery. But it seems to me that those soft skills of the kitchen are very different from what we might call the showy skills of the kitchen, which we more often celebrate on television, for instance. Nobody wants to watch on food TV someone simply chopping shallots. Instead, we replace them sort of with the power skills, the, the strong showy skills of the kitchen. Obvious one of all is flambéing, right? That's the showiest strong skill of the kitchen. Carving is a strong skill in the kitchen or a showy skill. Or maybe Jacques Papin boning a chicken, speaking of yes. amazing kitchen skills. Exactly. And another variety of knife skills from the skill you need to chop shallots or chop onions for that matter. And I got to thinking about why those soft kitchen skills are so seductive that they could begin a romance or, in Peter and Susan's case, a marriage that has now lasted almost 40 years. And it seems to me it's in part because they suggest the kind of quiet, understated mastery that we seek in a partner for life. We want someone who isn't showy but who is subtly effective. But also, when I think about it more deeply, when I take a second dive... It's also, don't you think, Christopher, it's because they suggest beginnings. Um, those are all things you do at the start of a meal. Flambéing, carving the chicken, those things tend to come later, and they're designed for the diners who are already in place. You know, they're not immediately, when you're beating egg whites, it's translation into a delicious thing to eat isn't self-evident. It's instead sort of self-contained. Well, I have to stop you for a second. Um, Please. I, I don't think it's so much it's the beginnings. I think that the quiet certitude of somebody uh. who knows a skill, it shows that they are self-confident and know themselves. Because I, I, don't, mm. I, I don't think you can do that well unless you are very sure of yourself and who you are. It, it, that's what it shows about the person, I think. That's beautiful, Chris, and I, I think you're right. It is, it is, isn't it? It's, it's the interiority yes, exactly. of that action, yes. right? It's the, the quiet, understated yes. confidence. You have to, as you said exactly in those classic words, know oneself. You have to know thyself in order to do a task like that well. It's not knowing your audience is the way we always talk. You got to know your audience to please them. You have to know thyself in order to chop shallots. But let me ask you a question that I've been brooding on as I past these thoughts on soft and strong. What's the one kitchen skill you most wish you had and honestly don't? Mine is a particular variant of knife skill, and that is not chopping, which I think I do uh, adequately, if not safely, according to the great Andre Sultner. But slicing is something I always feel I do inadequately. I admire anyone who can take an avocado, strip it bare, and slice it into beautiful portions that are neither too thick nor too thin. I admire the same kind of person who can do that with a breast of turkey. Slicing is a skill onto itself and one I must confess I don't really possess. I, I think the hardest thing to do, you mentioned, which is baklava or any very thin pastry that's translucent almost. Uh, mm -hmm. And people who can just take a big rolling pin and do that by hand, you know, without any device mm -hmm. to help them. I, I think that's the number one skill I would like to have. Well, I'll buy that. And you know what makes it so intense? It was the first skill I ever saw in operation, and the person mm -hmm. I saw activating that skill was my own mother. Well, 
you and I should start a cooking school, and the name of it will be Know Thyself, because <laughs> that's the first the first step to any skill in the kitchen is to know thyself. Adam, uh, this has been a watershed moment for us. It truly has yes. been. But, you know, Socrates said that the key to a realized life is to know thyself. So I think we're moving in an ever more Socratic direction. Well, we always engage in Socratic dialogues. Adam, thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. His latest book is The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, go to 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to all of our recipes, our cooking classes, and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.